Welcome to the Full Potential Podcast. I am your host, Nick Wagner Sr. And every week, I interview guests that share career stories, ideas, and experiences to empower and inspire people to reach their full potential. If you enjoy the episode, please subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google, and Spotify. Thanks for listening. It's another episode of the Full Potential Podcast. I'm, I'm thrilled to be with Matt McCooey of Connecticut Innovations tonight. And we're going to have a really, I think, great discussion, Matt. I, I said before we, you, ever, all the audience joined that I've been following your work for a while at Connecticut Innovations as a Connecticut guy. Uh, so we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about your whole career journey. So welcome to the show, and I appreciate you making time with your busy schedule. Thank you, Nick. I appreciate being here. It's great to be here. Well, Looking it's going to be fun. And uh, I mentioned to you, we have a lot of early career professionals that listen to this podcast. And I love being able to share inspirational career journeys like yours, Matt, with my with my audience. So people coming out of school can realize what what could be, right? So what, what they could do, there's not one right or wrong path. You've done a lot of different things and now you're running a venture capital firm, which I'm sure you probably didn't think that's what you were gonna do when you were growing up. So we're gonna talk about all that. But I, yeah. I always ask the question, Matt, just to kind of introduce yourself. When, when you meet someone, and they ask you, you know, who is Matt? How do you answer that question? Like, what, what, what's your answer to that? Yeah, um, boy, I, th- I think that's the hardest question you're going to ask all night, Nick. Um, so, I, I guess I, I go back to the beginning, right? I, I'm the, I'm Bobby and Jack and Cooey's sixth son, sixth kid. I'm from a big Irish Catholic family from Ridgewood, New Jersey. Um, I got my first pair of clothes that were bought for me in eighth grade, literally. Wow. Before that, everything was hand-me-downs all along, all along my journey. Um, and, uh, yeah, I went, to, I went to Boston College. I think that, that kind of helped define me as well. Um, but, yeah, I think if you sort of boil all those pieces down, you sort of get to the, get to the raw meat of who I am. <laughs> So you come from a big family, as yeah. you mentioned. So that that I'm sure influenced how you grew up, and I, and I I love how you start with with your parents. And I know family is important to you. So clearly, you you got that sense that that sense of family from from your your upbringing. But let let's talk about when I mean, you were a little Matt, right? Like all the way back uh, in New Jersey. Like I, like I mentioned, I'm going to guess running a venture capital firm was probably not what you dreamed of doing when you were a little kid, because who even knows what a venture venture capital firm is when you're a little kid? Didn't so what, exist. Was, yeah. what was your big dream as a kid, Matt, of what you wanted to do when you grew up? I, man, like everybody else, I, I'm, I'm wearing a Boston Red Sox hat here. I wanted to play second base for the Sox um, or play, you know, point guard for the Celtics. Uh, you know, I, I was a scrappy... You know, I was out of the house at 8 a.m. and I was I got home at 8 p.m. My knees were scraped and my elbows were torn up because I'd been biking or cycling or playing hoops or football. You know, whatever whatever was was on, I was I was a part of it and playing. Um, and so I just always wanted to be like active and and being involved in sports and playing with my friends and doing you know stuff that I that I loved. Um, and I think that's actually still pretty much true for me. You know, as I fast forward, you know, that's still what I, I still want to be like running around with my friends, doing interesting work and, and having fun and, you know, scraping up my knees, getting, getting into, getting into tussles if I need to, uh, and trying to win. 
Like I, I not that much has changed, funnily enough. That that's an interesting comparison. I, I like the uh, I, I can sense the competitive nature. So, so let let's let's talk about you know obviously family was big for you. You had a lot of siblings. You you was the plan from you and Matt to always go to college? Was that I mean was was it from when as long as you can remember your parents were like Matt you're going to college. Or was that something that you decided on your own you wanted to do and made happen? Because it's different for every family. And I always find this in, this, this discussion interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I saw David Salinas was on your podcast earlier. I'm sure he would have had a very different uh, Yes, answer. he had a very interesting answer for me. <laughs> I know. He's got strong feelings about higher education. Um, my mom's – yeah, my mom is, is hard to the right um, in terms of the importance of education, both she and my dad. Um, you know, my dad's – parents came over on the boat from Ireland and he was the first generation, um, you know, managed to scrape his way through college. There's a great story about him. He was at Fordham University and um, was working full time, you know, paying for his, helping cover his mom's costs, helping his younger brother get into college. And he went to um, the head of the, of the college at the time. And he said, you know, father, I hate to tell you, but I've got to drop out. Um, you know, I can't make my my tuition payments, and I and I just I need to be home when I and forty hours a week isn't cutting it. I need to to make more money, and I can't do school and and pay tuition and and work. And uh, the father said, you know, Jack, if you come back in here again, I'm going to kick your ass. Get back, go back to school, get back in the classroom. And so he, you know, Fordham basically covered his college for the next two years, and it, and that was a, a game changer for him. You know, the school kept him in there and it got him his degree and, and that made all of a difference for him. Um, my mother came from a very, very, uh, you know, family where education was prized. Um, her grand, great grandfather, I guess, was off the boat, grandparents off the boat. Um, but, you know, her parents were, and her um, aunts and uncles were all scholars, you know, PhDs and lawyers and, um, she had a master's degree from from Yale back when that wasn't so common, um, and so yeah, I would say from the very get go, it was understood all of us, you know, we're, we're all going to go to college. There was no question. And even my parents didn't have any money, which we didn't. That was the one thing they were going to find a way to make sure we were all able to get through high school and, and college. Yeah, I mean that that that's a great story, and I mean again, I think it really. It depends on what, 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 how your parents influence you, that, that decision for a lot of people. And it, it's, you know, obviously you, you mentioned BC, which is, which is a great school. What made you choose Boston College and, and how did you decide what you wanted to do for a degree? I mean, did you have a sense going into it what you wanted to do or, or was that a journey as well trying to figure that out? Yeah, so um, there was definitely a... Uh, a real appreciation for liberal arts degrees and learning for learning's sake and, and pursuit of knowledge and following one's curiosity. And, and that was sort of the goal for all of us. Um, that was what we were taught was the most important thing about in education wasn't getting a vocational technical degree, although I think those are, those are fantastic as well. Um, but it, it was the, uh, yeah, that pursuit of learning. Um, and BC was the best. <laughs> BC, I was lucky to get into BC, and it was a lot, a lot easier to get into then than it is now. I, was, I scraped, and and was really lucky to get in there. Uh, the best school I got into, and it was the best place I, I could have ended up. You know, I, I was much happier there than I would have been in a place else. It turned out to be a, a really propitious and um, 
fortuitous place for me. Yeah, and it and it's interesting because you know I think a lot of a lot of, like look, look let's be honest, right? When we when you pick where you're going to go to school, like we're kids, right? I mean, you know, I didn't when I when I decided to go to UConn, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I think it, it's a lot of a lot of students going into college don't know what they want to do. So uh, you end you ended up you know going to Boston College. What was as you went through that? Did it did it become more clear to you what you wanted to do when you were done? Did you have like a, a great teacher that helped you figure that out? Was there a, an internship you had? Like, how did you figure out? Because you had a job, you know, uh, you know, I was obviously checking out on LinkedIn before this, you had a job right out of school, um, you know, is where you really started your journey. So how did you figure out what you wanted to do? Yeah, so um, I'm sure you knew kids at, at UConn who were doing this. I was the one who was making t-shirts and, you know, illegal as hell, you know, it was stealing trademarks left and right. Um, but I was making t-shirts and knocking on doors for the freshmen, selling them to the to the parents when they're coming onto campus. So me and my friends, we always, my friends and I, we always had a hustle. We're always, you know, figuring out how to, to make a buck. And it was just basically cover, you know, it was basically beer money, right? It wasn't, right. you know, wasn't covering tuition like my father had to do. Um, but, uh, yeah, so you know, I think you know, even then, I was interested in entrepreneurship, and we didn't call it that. We just called it, you know, finding finding interesting and fun ways to to make money um, with our with my friends. Um, and so, yeah, I got started doing that, and and I always had, you know, I was I was lucky. I got good jobs. My father was an executive recruiter, and so um, he was a master networker. Truly, one of the one of the great networks I've, networkers I've met. Um, and so he even helped me get into BC, but he helped me, he helped me get, get jobs. He helped me sort of get, get my, get, a, get some footing. But in terms of the education that I got at BC, um, I got very, uh, caught up in the Jesuit mission, which is, you know, be, become a man for others. Um, you know, this idea of, of service and, um, creating a more socially just world. And, you know, my senior year, I, I was, moving pretty far away from the consumer stuff and like making money just for money's sake and moving pretty hard in the other direction where I was sort of anti-consumer society and um, that hedonic cycle, which we can talk more about if you want. Um, but I, I learned a lot about social justice and, and the, our society and how it's structured and how it's meant to sort of turn us all into consumers and have us keep buying and buying more stuff. Uh, and I knew I didn't, I knew I didn't want to, I, I think I, I, I figured out then that it was all, it felt ultimately like a trap. And I don't want to fall into it. Um, and so, like my senior year, instead of going with my friends to Jamaica, I, I went to Maine, and I and I worked building houses in Maine. Um, and my first job out of college, I was doing volunteer work, helping refugees from um, Central America get get legal status, people who were fleeing the wars in Guatemala and El Salvador. I spent a full year doing volunteer work with the Jesuit Volunteer Corps. Um, so you know it, what. Not to say that I, you know, I was also living in Nantucket and bartending, and you know, I was doing interesting, fun stuff. Uh, you know, I sort of never lost my sense of like um, joy, but I also felt like um, at Boston College, I, I caught this bug for um, you know being changed, but not not so much being changed by the world, but trying to make a change in the world. Yeah, and that and that I think. I think if you look at what you've done throughout your career, I think you've embraced that with a lot of different roles, including the one that you're in now, because I think with Connecticut Innovations, you're absolutely 
working with companies that I think are doing a lot of positive, positive things for the world. So I definitely see the foundation of that. I, I want to talk about you know, a, a couple, a couple jobs. We're not going to go through your whole history, but a couple jobs that jumped out at me that I thought would be really interesting to chat, chat about. You, you know, you did some work in New York City, but then you went to Mexico. So you actually took a role outside the U.S. And I, I would love to hear your thoughts on why did you take a role outside the U.S.? Like, what did you learn? Like, share a little bit about that, that 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 role because not everyone has an opportunity to go work in other countries. Yeah, sure. So. Uh... For one thing, I, I did um, study in Madrid my junior year, so I got some got some fundamentals in Spanish. Um, that first job out of college, I was working, you know, speaking Spanish all the time, um, and uh, I applied for something called the Rotary Club, which is, you know, my mom is a Fulbright scholar, Rotary scholars, it's sort of like a poor man's Rotary scholar. I apologize to any Rotarians who might be listening. Um, and it was an opportunity to go study anywhere in the world. I, you, they basically said, you know, go someplace, get a degree, live with a family, be an ambassador, represent the, the Rotarians. Um, and so I chose Mexico because um, at the time I was working for MCI. And MCI was huge. You probably haven't even heard of it, but it was a huge telecommunications company. It was like, it, yeah. it was the competitor to AT&T. They basically broke up AT&T, literally, when it was just a monopoly. Um, and it was the fastest growing services company in the world. And I knew they were going to Mexico. I knew I wanted to work there, um, and Mexico is also going through a telecommunications, you know, opening. So it was going to open up its competition for the first time, which is really interesting. It's a little like being in Berlin after the walking down or Russia when when it opened up to capitalism. Um, and so Mexico was going through that in 1994, and so I was able to go down there, get a degree in marketing, um, live with the Mexican family, learn Spanish. It was an incredible experience. Really went native. Um, didn't know anybody who was American, didn't want to know anybody who spoke English. I, I really sort of fully embraced the experience. I got to know the people who I thought and think are some of the most lovely people on the planet. Um, and then when MCI came, I was I had already done a year of work for Beckman Dickinson, which is a big Fortune 500 company where my dad helped me get that job. Um, and uh, MCI came and, and I was the first American they hired because I was, I was there. Oh, wow. I, basically, I, basically, I basically front ran them by 18 months. So when they got there, they couldn't afford not to hire me because I knew all the products. I was a top salesman for them in the country and, and I spoke the language and I, and I knew marketing at that point. And so I, I it was basically like my path into product management, product management and marketing, which is what I wanted to do for MCI. So I basically that's, did an that, end run that's so on cool. them. And what, you know, I, cause I think a lot of, a, a lot of young early career professionals dream about doing what you did and, and, you know, leaving their home country, going to work somewhere else, it's, it sounds like you, you feel it was a great experience, but uh, any advice for people when they're trying to figure out if that's a good idea for them? Yeah, so I guess two things. One is um, back in my day, you were told you had to go, if you're gonna get a job, you have to go stay five, 10 years. Like you're not allowed to leave. Like you have to go and you have to stay. You have to, you know, if people think that you're a job hopper, you'll never get hired. Um, and I think, you know, basically my, my, and my dad was a recruiter, so he was very much a believer in that, in that model and that mantra. Um, but I never thought it was true. I, I was much more like, like the millennials, like, like your generation and, and younger, um, where they've, you know, people sort of work for a year or two, they learn what they need to learn, and then they go on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And suddenly after five, 10 years, they've got this, you know, 
arsenal of weapons that they've built up by working in all these different places, learning all these different skills. And I do think, you know, it, we're in a global world and um, understanding how business works in other countries is vitally important, at least was, for, I, I thought it was important for me at the time. Um, you know, learning to speak in other languages and, and learning other cultures and how business gets done elsewhere was incredibly valuable. And, I, and I'll say this too, Nick, it is about as much fun as I've ever had professionally was just being an expat in a foreign country. Now, I found a pack after I, I sort of went from, you know, just living with my Mexican family when I was in school to living with a bunch of Americans and French and people from all over the world. And there was just like a rat pack of us. There were like 30 of us. And we went around the country and we traveled every weekend and we played and we had lake house and we had beach houses. It was so much fun. Um, and it was because we were all, you know, living abroad, living the dream. And I think yeah. anybody can do it. I think anybody can go, you know, if, you know, if, if you have a, a skill you've picked up in America um, and you've got some rudimentary language, language skills um, and you're thinking about, you know, pack up your bags, apply for a scholarship fund, or if not, contact your embassy or just move, pick up, a, you know, find everybody knows somebody knows somebody and go to a foreign country and, and go get a job because Americans, people want to hire Americans. Um, and you'll eventually, if you commit to it, you're going to meet some amazing people and get some fantastic work experience. Yeah. So and, I'm and so I mean, glad I did it. And I, I think, I think that's great advice. And I think for a lot of people early on in their career, when they maybe don't have a family or a mortgage, it's a great time to do it because you just have less to tie you down to where you are. So I think that's, I think that's fantastic advice. I, I want to talk about how you ended up. So you're, you're doing, you're doing marketing, you're doing sales, which is, you, you mentioned you wanted to do. And then you, you did a big pivot um, in like the early 2000s, it looks like, when you ended up going to work for Columbia. So yeah. uh, the, the college, so Columbia University. So yeah. explain, and, and, and you mentioned, and I, and I, wanna, I wanna hear if, if how, the, how networking played into this, because you mentioned your father was this, this amazing networker, networker, and I'm sure he taught you a few things. So how did you end up going from the telecom industry to Columbia University? Yeah, so um, it's funny. My kids were just asking me that at, at dinner tonight. They're like, "How did you, how did you get into Columbia University?" It doesn't make any sense because you know I, I worked. I went to business school there, so right. I, I, I did. I did get my MBA. Um, and when I was in business school, I worked on a business plan with, with one of my college friends who was with me at MCI, um, and we started a company. It was 1999. I graduated that that um, May of. 99, we worked on the business plan all that final semester. Um, Glenn Hubbard, who became the dean, he, he was Bush's economic advisor. Um, he was an investor. He was like in the in the kitchen make, with the pizzas and with us as we were putting the plan together. Um, and uh, yeah, that kitchen table business plan, we raised 20 million bucks and ended up raising $100 million and um, you know, hit 100 million in sales and, and had, a, had a big exit. Um, but it was also the time of the telecommunications crash. So the telecom world went like that, and then it went down like that. Um, and when I was at Columbia, uh, my brother had introduced me to some people in the, in the technology transfer office. Um, and they had recruited me at the time to stay. I did some interning there when I was in school. Um, and so I got to know some of them during that experience. And um, they wanted me to work under somebody who I didn't want to work under. And they called 
or I reached out to them through my, my brother, I think, and uh, he's also a great networker. Um, and had an interview and they said, you know, we want you to, we want you to come back. And so I ended up, I only wanted to stay three years. I stayed five. It was incredibly fun. And I managed a, uh, the university's early stage venture, venture investments into the university research. So I would find a researcher who was working on um, a cure for Alzheimer's or a cure for memory loss or cancer or software, a software package. And we would give them, you know, fifty hundred thousand dollars to advance their, their work far enough along that, that a VC could come in and invest. And I would work with the VCs that pull the business plan together. So basically taking all the sales and marketing and business plan stuff that I'd done um, and being founder of a couple of companies, um, I was able to bring that those to Columbia and help their faculty members launch a bunch of companies out of the university. It was, it so was great I'm, fun. I'm, I was hoping that you would tell that story because I wanted you to tie you moving to Columbia back with the company and, and that, that you started, that you co-founded. Um, so I appreciate you sharing that. And you, you, you kind of casually just talked about how you led a company from zero, you know, zero to $28 million in revenue. Um, but what a ride that must have been at that point in time, right? So many, many people in my audience don't remember, obviously, you know, 99, 2000, 2001 with the, this whole internet boom and you know, the year Y2K and everything that went on with the technology industry then. But you obviously had a lot of passion and knowledge about the telecom industry any any a lot of people don't don't do what you did matt which was go start a company from from nothing right raise raise capital bring it to you know a point where you exit exit the company successfully what was that two years like because i can't even imagine like the ride that must have been from when you started that to when you when you when you exited it. Yeah, so I should say I exited before the company had their their sale. It sold a couple of years later. Um, but yeah, man, we went from you know three of us, a kitchen table. We had three hundred people a year later, or eighteen months later. We had three. We had three hundred people. We were in five different cities. I had eight of my Columbia Business School classmates who were working with me. Um, it was insane. I met my I met my wife at an internet conference. You know, and we were you know, she was one of the five women at this conference with 150 dudes. Um, but I met my I met my wife at because there were internet conferences every every night. There was a there was a party, um, and it was it it was wild. I mean, people were the, they were the bankers were throwing money at us. We were raising money as quickly as we wanted to. We were doing mergers. Um, one quick story I'll tell you is that as the telecommunications market was crumbling, um, we, had, we, we two of the people from from Columbia with me who, we, who joined us were ex bankers, and so we, we were going around to um, there was there were like six or seven companies in our in our market space. We were going into buildings and we were basically in the in the riser. We were providing like broadband internet. And then we would sell applications and and you know high speed high speed bandwidth into the all the tenants in the buildings, um, and then you had to like do deals with the real estate people and put the infrastructure in. It was it was pretty complicated, um, and it was very clear in 2000, 2001 that none of these companies were going to make it because everybody was there was a massive amount of venture capital that came in, and then all the VCs pulled back. Everybody was out, um, and so these these two 
uh, MBAs and the guy who, um, one of the other guys was a really smart Wharton guy. Um, they were going around to all of our competitors and their board being like, look, we know you've only got three, four million bucks left. You've got all this infrastructure. You you know, the writing's on the wall. You're definitely going bankrupt. If, it, if it's not tomorrow, you're bankrupt in like 60 days. We're going to be the last guy standing. Merge with us and we'll give you, we'll take your, your cash. We'll give you that value in the equity of this company that's going to be you know this it's going to emerge a winner in the space what they didn't and every every time they, they said yes what they didn't know is that that three to four million dollars was what was going to keep us afloat for the next six to 12 12 weeks for us to do the next deal and the next deal and the next deal um and so there was a lot of serendipity in surviving that and, and a lot of smart people who were able and great deal makers who were able to allow us to um to get through that so i saw the huge hype you know, the, the, the Gartner hype cycle, the huge ride up, and then the huge sort of unbelievable sloth into the trough of disillusionment and all the yeah. way up the other side where, where you know, the, the market sort of found its equilibrium. It, it, was a, it was a great experience, very fun, and quite, quite instructional for everything I've done since. Well, yeah, yeah. and I mean, I, I feel that the, the work you did at Columbia was, was really probably a huge inspiration for you and what you do at Connecticut Innovations today, because I think yeah. what you talked about, obviously it's not exactly the same thing, but there's definitely some similarities between what you do, what you did at Columbia and what you do today. And I want to, I want to pause for a second because I think a lot of my guests probably might not know, like what is a venture capital firm? Like, can you explain in the, in the most, you know, basic terms, what, what does that mean? What is venture capital? Sure. So, um, we provide the highest risk and highest reward capital in, in the in the system in the economic system so we're the vcs we're the ones who will put you know um we'll give sergey and, and larry we'll give them the first five million bucks back when they were the 23rd search engine coming out of stanford right so it's a crazy bet that that um Kleiner Perkins made but we do crazy things we, we find people we like and we believe in and um and we get behind their business plans we give them some capital to get started and and um use our networks to open up doors and find additional dollars to come and invest behind them and help them recruit help them help the entrepreneurs a lot of them are first time entrepreneurs help them you know understand best practices and uh stay out of trouble and and hopefully find their way to to great success and so you know we I, I think it's a um a pretty noble calling it's and it's also in my opinion it's the most fun job you could possibly have and and when when you uh, you know again like i don't think back when you were doing telecom in mexico or even starting your own business it didn't sound like you had this the sense that you were going to run a venture capital firm at one point but as you went through that process working for yourself with your startup and, and actually raising capital yourself, did you get a sense that, wow, maybe I'll, I want to do this one day and this is really interesting? Or how, how did you figure that out? Because I feel like that's being an entrepreneur and then running a venture capital firm are obviously two very different things. Yeah, so um, I definitely knew by the time I was 24 or so or 25 that I, wanted to, that I was going to be a venture capitalist. Interesting. Okay. Um, so in the same way that I sort of end ran MCI, like I was like, there's no way they're going to give me the marketing job in Mexico. I got to go, I got to get down there before they get there. Um, 
I also did, you know, something similar, you know, I, I um, you know, before uh, business school, I did a four month internship for a trust company of the West, which was an emerging markets private equity firm, which is, you know, it's just basically later stage venture capital, but still investing in private companies. Um, and I did that because I, I went to the, I went to a library and I put together a whole book on venture capital and private equity. I pulled together, you know, 50 most up-to-date articles from Harvard Business Review and, and the Stanford Business Journal. And I, I pulled this whole document, this dossier together for them because they didn't have it on the subject matter. Um, and I went to them and they gave me a job. And, and so, you know, I, even then I knew that was the, the path that I was on. Well, that's interesting. Um, yeah, no, I, I I was very committed to, and the Columbia thing sort of was putting me on in that path. Um, I I knew I wanted to get, I knew I wanted to um, pursue this. It's a hard job to get, but I, but I, I knew I knew it was one I wanted no, to be. No, I, I mean, I, you, absolutely. I mean, you know, I think the the reality, right, is there's uh, there's there's uh, not a huge amount of venture capital firms compared to like a lot of other jobs out there. Right. So, yeah. I mean, it's not like, it's not like there's, you know, a venture capital firm on, on every corner of the street. So with Kinetic especially Innovations, huh? yeah, especially, yeah, especially, especially back, back then. then with Kinetic Innovations, which is the, the premier venture capital firm in Connecticut, how did you end up there? Right. So I want to ask that question. How did you end up at Connecticut Innovations? And I know you didn't, you, I don't think, I don't believe you, um, obviously you didn't go there as the CEO. So how did that, how did that kind of that evolution happen for you? Um, and I want to hear every story you've told so far is about your network, right? So I know uh, that's probably a part of it, but I want to hear about how that happened. Yeah, sure. So um, you're right about that. Uh, so they actually had a, had a recruiting firm. So uh, Russell Reynolds um, was leading the search um, my wife, who's also an entrepreneur, heard about the job and she told me about it, but she's like, do not apply. And I hadn't applied for a job in 10 years. And I was like, yeah. no, it sounds really interesting. I have a chance to go and make an impact. And she's like, but it's up in, in Hartford and you know, your whole network is in New York. And, um, and then I went in and, and really like the people I met with, you know, Mike Cantor and Catherine Smith were the, were sort of chair and vice chair. I love them. Um, then uh, they brought me in like two days later to meet with Dan Malloy, who was the governor at the time. And I sat down with Dan and, and uh, he looked at my resume and I've been doing venture capital for 15 years. I had a couple of successful startups. Um, my resume said, so Matt, why do you want to work here? I said, stop, stop, stop. Do you want to work here? <laughs> why would you, why, what, are you, what are you thinking? And I was like, governor, it'd be you know, a great honor and a pleasure to, to do this. And so, yeah, so they brought me in uh, to, to help run the place. Um, I think they thought that, uh, you know, this, he and Catherine Smith were investing a lot of money in, in, into venture capital in the state. They thought it was going to be an important lever to help um, emerging companies grow. And um, they, were looking, they were looking for, um, they were just looking for somebody with, with some, some like experience running, running other venture capital firms. Um, and so I was lucky enough to get it. I was lucky enough that I, that I made the call to, to join. I was, I, you know, it wasn't obvious at the time, but I'm so glad I did it. I, I love how you hadn't applied for a job in so long and you applied for this one. 
so I would I would love for you to share with my audience. So obviously, Connecticut Innovations invests in and you said early stage startups to to help them grow here in the state of Connecticut. But what can you can you share some of the success stories of companies that you've you've invested in that you're really personally proud of that have made an impact? Because I know that for you, this isn't to your point earlier. It's not just about making money. You really love the impact, the social impact for good that you get to make. So any 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 success stories you want to share? Boy, my God, there's so many. Um, <laughs> you know, we have uh, 225 companies, and so I don't want to uh, I don't want to. Choose, pick and choose favorites, um, but we love them all just di different <laughs> in, in different ways. Uh, but you know, in the last, you know, do you know what an, a unicorn? I, I don't know if everybody knows what a unicorn is, but it's a billion yeah, if dollars. You could, plus. If you could explain it, that would be great. Yeah. So they're, they're, if a company um, has a billion dollar plus valuation, they're called a unicorn because at least it used to be incredibly rare. You know, like a unicorn in the forest. Uh, that a company would be would be valued at a billion dollars, and for the last five years, Connecticut Innovations has had one uh, unicorn per year. Um, the state of Connecticut has had like seven or eight, which is you know more than most countries in the on the planet during the same time period. It's 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 incredibly impressive, um, and some of them like like our Venice, they're working on um, cures for for prostate cancer and. Um, we have other companies that are more prosaic. They're doing um, event conference software. Um, another company, Greenworks Lending, that just sold for a great multiple. Um, they're doing uh, financing for for solar installations are all around the country with using government programming to figure out how to, how to do low cost um, installs so people can put solar up who wouldn't otherwise be able to afford it. Um, we have companies in, in the travel industry, you know, that, that survived the travel uh, debacle over the last year and a half, and they're they're emerging incredibly well um, in this time. We've got companies that are modernizing the grid, and um, you know, we've medical device companies that are you know changing the way we're doing surgery. Um, one company, uh, one story I love is is Andre Swanston who. Um, is also a UConn grad, went to Holderness, uh, which is a, a fabulous private school here in Connecticut. Um, and uh, he came from the Bronx, you know, grew up in the Bronx. His par parents were very into education. I think his mom was a teacher. Um, but a uh, scholarship kid who at, at Holderness and, and at UConn, and uh, he just sold his company for over 100 million bucks. And he sold it. It's an ad tech company in, in Stanford. It's you know created this multi generational wealth. So you know there's a lot of people also who've gone from from nothing. You know we have one entrepreneur here who you know his dad was a uh, unemployed police officer in Lagos, Nigeria, or outside Nigeria, who made it to America, got married, went went through, got his MBA, University of New Haven, and has started three companies worth a billion dollars or more. I mean, there's so many, you know, incredibly inspiring people in the state who, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm in awe of for, for what they've built. And just just watch that we've got another, you know, this year we'll have another billion dollar company, I hope. You know, it's, it's, it's an exciting time of venture capital and it's a great time in, in Connecticut. We're having a lot of success. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I can I can sense the joy in the way you speak about how proud you are of these companies. 
and, and being a part of it. So I, I appreciate that. Uh, I, 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 have a, I have one more question about, about your career in Kinetic Innovations and we'll, we'll, I always close the same question. When you look back at your career, you mentioned networking multiple times, Matt. For, for everyone out there, why is networking so important in your view? And and you have do you have any tips for people on on like how do you how do you become better at it? Right? You mentioned you, you learned a lot from your father, but how do, is it, can you become better at it in your opinion? What's your thought on that? Yeah, so I, I was thinking a lot about this coming into this um, discussion. Um, because a, a conversation I had at the dinner table tonight with my kids. Um, so I would say just about every job that I've ever had, almost, not with, with, some, with a few exceptions, um, I knew somebody who was able to connect me to somebody. And I'm not saying that I got the job because nobody has sort of put their hand on the scale and said, you have to hire this person, maybe once or twice. But for the most, for the most part, you know, the, I got the interview. Um, and, uh, you know, you can be a, a great networker, you know, you can, be, you can come off the boat from, you know, Nigeria and become an extraordinary network. This guy, Ani Chukwu, you know, he's had the Clintons, he's had the Clintons at his house. Um, he's hosted the, you know, a fundraiser for the Clintons. And in my opinion, there's a couple of things that, that people just have to do. They have to be very open, they have to be... Um, you know, relax about it. They have to put themselves into situations that make them uncomfortable. You know, go to things where you know you, you're you might feel awkward. Um, have a few good stories that you can tell, so people feel like you're able to sort of carry the conversation when you need to. And also drop breadcrumbs. So when you're talking to people, um, you know the the story I started off with about how I grew up. There's a lot of breadcrumbs in there, right? So there's a lot of things that people could pick up on where they can relate to me right. because, oh, I knew, I know somebody from New Jersey. Oh, I knew somebody from BC or I, I somebody who's Irish Catholic or I knew somebody, I, I, I was poor to middle-class growing up. Like there's so many things there where first it's very easy to find a connection to keep the conversation going. And I think that, um, that connection and, and the sense of relatedness is what allows people to want to sort of help and work with each other. And, and so I, I basically spent all my time now, Nick, connecting VCs to our companies and our companies to, you know, customers and talent. So I basically, all I, all I do all day long is expand my network and meet more and more people and put everybody sort of into a room together, a virtual room is like we're in now. Um, but I, I really believe that anybody can do it. Um, it's a, it's, it's a universal, gift that that we, that people give each other people i think want to help each other and and um we just have to make it so we can people can relate to us and that they want to help us and 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 they will you know I, i'm this is going to sound mystical but i don't mean it to but you know i think when you sort of speak to the universe the universe listens and, and it brings back to you what, you what very often what you're seeking um and i think people just need to sort of speak to the universe and tell that you know let people know what they want and, you know, making a declaration about it, like having a, having a vision of where they want to be um, and being able to articulate it. That's really important to yourself for yourself and, and certainly for myself. Um, and I, I think it sort of launches a, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of journeys. No, I, I think that's well said. And the point about your role as a venture capital 
uh, firm, not only are you providing capital in, in the form of dollars, right? You know, money and, and assets, but the what you said, I think is almost as important, if not more important is the, the coaching and guidance and the networking you're providing that company in addition to the money. It is it, probably almost priceless, Matt, honestly, with, with the, the way the way you described it. So I appreciate you sharing that. And and I love the uh, I love the I love the breadcrumbs. I'm going to use that. I, I don't worry. I will credit you. I, I really enjoy that. Uh, so I always close the same question, Matt. I know you mentioned um, you having dinner with your family earlier. Thank you for making time out of your family running Connecticut Innovations to to share your your journey. So I think it's a fascinating journey. So I was really happy to have you on. But I always close the same question. What is the one piece of advice that you would give my listeners that's helped you reach your full potential? So you've been successful in the telecom industry, do, you know, doing sales, starting your own business, now in venture capital. What is that one thing that you would share that's helped you be so successful? Yeah, um, two things. I think your first couple of jobs need to be work. It needs to be hard. Like you need to go and push yourself, get it, get into some, you know, if you're an engineer, go get the hardest job at the toughest place. If you want to do sales and marketing, go work for the number one sales and marketing firm, you know, get into sales, grind it out with the, with the best possible people you can, because those are the people you're going to learn from. Those are the basic skill skills and tools that, um, that you'll need later in life. And I think it's really important to have two or three things that you're exceptional, exceptional at, or that you at least believe that you're truly, truly good at. Um, and then if you do that, I, you know, I, I, I feel like I haven't worked for the last 20 years. Like everything I've done, Nick, has been, has been play for me, right? I, I don't, you know, I obviously like everybody else, I've got, I have bad days and I've got, you know, disappointing outcomes and, and hard conversations with people that I want to have. But um, for the most part, I've been able to do what I love. Um, and I think if you do what you love and, and it sounds like a, a, it sounds like a crappy, you know, sp speech at a, at a graduation, but, but, um, you know, finding something that you really enjoy doing allows you to excel. I think it's good for your blood pressure. It's good for your mental health, your physical health. Um, it's good for your family. And, uh, you know, you, you, the people say you never you never work another day in your life if you find something you love, and um, and I think that's true. But for the young people on the call, it is incredibly important that you grind it out. And if everybody around you is work, you know, it's it's also cliche. But if your boss is getting in at seven, get in there at six fifty nine. Um, if your boss is leaving at at seven, leave at seven o two. You know, put the extra effort in and and it pays dividends for a whole career. It's like two, three, four, five years of grinding and you'll get you know, a 50 year dividend from that. And when you're in your early twenties, you, you have unlimited energy anyway. So, right. And so, you can do that, right. You can still, yeah, you can, you can still that. party for, until four in the morning and get up at six and go hard. I can't do that now. I can't do that for, you know, I, I would need two weeks to recover. Especially with, 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 with the family, right? But no, I think yeah. great advice, Matt. I appreciate you making time. F fantastic conversation. We're going to link in the show description, Matt, to your LinkedIn if anyone wants to get in touch with you. We'll also link to the Connecticut Innovations website. So if you have any, any entrepreneurs listening that might be interested in Connecticut Innovations, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Full Potential Podcast. If you'd like to hear more interviews, please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google, and Spotify. 
You can also connect with us on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And don't forget to check out our website, fullpotentialmovement.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing and be well.